Thank you, Gleaves. You delivered that just as I wrote it. <coughs> Actually, I remember, I will quote Ronald Reagan, not for the last time this evening, who once said, I knew Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was a friend of mine, and you're no Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> But then I'm no Ben Franklin, so we're even. Anyway, thank you for all of the hospitality, for everything uh, this week. It's been a memorable week for me. It, it really has felt so much like coming home, and I, I'm, not, I'm not just saying that. Uh, uh, it's actually been an emotional experience for me, and uh, not least of all, seeing so many old friends and uh, Uh, meeting some new ones um, in this magical place because that's how I think of Grand Rapids um, beginning with the Ford connection but but going so much further than that I want to ask one thing please because you, you saw Ralph but there are a whole bunch of Hohensteins here tonight would all of the Hohensteins please stand up everyone named Hohenstein <laughs> <laughs> This, of course, is, is part of Ralph's legacy, but, uh, and he should be very proud of this, but that is the real Hohenstein legacy and how proud you must be, Ralph. So uh, this evening, this one's for you. I um, happened to come across uh, something that Peggy Noonan wrote not long ago, just before the election, um, I, long after we had settled on this topic for this evening. Uh, it was interesting. I, I, maybe some of you might have seen it in the Wall Street Journal uh, opinion page. It was called The Politics of Dancing. And the subtitle was FDR and Reagan had more fun than their successors do, uh, to which I can only say amen. This is how Peggy Noonan addressed the subject of this evening's conversation. And I do hope it will be a conversation. I hope when I'm done we'll have an opportunity to uh, to take some questions. Everyone is focusing on the polls and spreadsheets, on the scandals and negative ads. This, in fact, may be the year negative advertising reached critical mass. Voters are no longer running from the room saying, Smith is dishonest, I must vote for Jones. They're slouched in front of the TV thinking, they're all bums. I'll try to pick the least bummy. We're asking, honey, which bum is least likely to raise my property taxes? The irony of the ads, their relentless tearing down, may force voters to decide based on actual issues. But this, writes Peggy Noonan, is about something else. This is about the dance. The dance is where you see the joy of the joust. It's a gifted pro making his moves. It's a moment of humor, wit, or merriness on the trail. It's the clever jab or the unexpected line that flips an argument. It's a thing in itself, and it's so much itself, so distinctive, that whether you are left, right, or center, red team or blue, you can look at the moves of a guy on the other side and say with honest admiration, man, that was good. FDR, of course, could dance. Think of him on the stump chanting the names of his congressional foes, rolling their names in his marbly tones, Martin, Barton, and Fish, or announcing gravely that he's not offended by charges he used government transport to ferry his pets, but his little dog, Thala, is very upset. <laughs> Or this, it's the 1960s and California's new governor, warring with the public university system, goes to meet with the chancellors. 
Students massed to protest his arrival by standing shoulder to shoulder and staring at him in complete and jarring silence. He arrives, walks past, turns at the doorway, and puts his finger to his lips. Shh, he says, and winks. <laughs> they start to laugh. Well, the time he was heckled at a rally in 1984 and said, you know, I just may let Mr. Mondale raise his own taxes. <laughs> Ronald Reagan could dance. Well, Peggy Noonan put it very well, as she is wont to do. Certainly the theme of this evening is Roosevelt and Reagan, masters of the dance. That brilliant simplifier, Theodore Roosevelt, divided presidents into two categories, Lincoln presidents and Buchanan presidents. Modern political scientists use different words to say much the same thing. When they speak of active versus passive, leader versus manager, bold visionary versus defender of the status quo, either or. Not surprisingly, for much of the last century, so-called strong presidents have been celebrated for their willingness to enlist the state in economic planning and the pursuit of equal rights under the law. Beginning with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, it has become accepted wisdom that the greatest of our presidents strengthen the office even as they centralize authority in Washington, D.C. No one more dramatically advanced this view of the modern presidency than the first modern president. Before FDR, there was T.R., as entertaining as he was emphatic, and a godsend to political cartoonists. When he died, there's a wonderful story his sister, uh, Corinne Robinson, was stopped on the streets of New York by an Irish policeman who said, oh, Mrs. Robinson, it wasn't just that he was a great leader, but do you remember the fun of him? <laughs> just remember the fun of him. Beginning with Theodore Rex, the modern White House became a temple in the cult of presidential personality. Today it stands ringed with satellite dishes ready to beam every presidential utterance to a public for whom 24-hour news cycles and saturation coverage poses an ironic threat to any leader who presumes to dominate his age and set the national agenda. After all, how many television characters last more than a single season, let alone four or eight years? Yet that is exactly what presidents have become, guests in our electronic home and just as likely to wear out their welcome as most company. History, like lightning, is not supposed to repeat itself. A dozen years after the old rough rider went to his grave, his distant cousin would replace another president, Herbert Hoover, whose shortcomings were publicly and poignantly summed up in his own lament that you can't make a Teddy Roosevelt out of me. Franklin Roosevelt entertained no such doubts. I want to be a preacher president, he said, in conscious emulation of his swashbuckling cousin. By the 1930s, the Bowie pulpit first put to such effective use by the first Roosevelt, was electronically wired. Thanks to radio, millions of Americans, and I suspect some of you in this hall tonight know exactly what I'm talking about, could listen to a president in their own homes. Aiding FDR's honey-on-toast baritone was a keen sense of timing and an instinctive grasp of the dangers of overexposure. A depression-weary public responded overwhelmingly to the new messenger and his message of hope. The actress Lillian Gish said of FDR, he seemed to have been dipped in phosphorus.
Herbert Hoover's mail had been taken care of by a single clerk. Franklin Roosevelt had to hire 50 clerks to take care of his mail. As the presidency reached new heights of prestige and visibility, the rest of the federal government grew in direct proportion to the economic and foreign crises of the period. Contrary to popular belief, in 12 years, Roosevelt conducted just 30 of his celebrated fireside chats. Shying away from overtly partisan appeals, he used homely metaphors to ingratiate himself with listeners around America's kitchen tables. So he spoke of priming the pump to justify deficit spending and of loaning in battle Britain a garden hose in the form of Lend-Lease with which to douse the flames started by Hitler and his Nazi arsonists. Among the listeners who drew hope from the buoyant new occupant of the White House was a shoe salesman's son in Dixon, Illinois. Ronald Reagan was a child of the Great Depression, which crippled the American economy in the 1930s, casting doubt on the future of the country's democratic institutions. In the Reagan household, Franklin D. Roosevelt was an icon of hope, as were his New Deal programs, not least of all for Ron's alcoholic father, Jack, who landed a job with the WPA. Young Reagan cast his first presidential ballot for FDR. In fact, he would vote four times for Franklin Roosevelt. At the time, he could scarcely imagine that one day he would lead his own political counter-revolution, a conservative crusade to reverse the flow of power to Washington, first implemented by his boyhood hero. Now, on the surface, there seems little to bond the aristocratic Roosevelts of Hyde Park with the itinerant Reagans of Dixon, Illinois. There are, however, many kinds of roots. The Reagan family may have been poor enough that oatmeal meat was considered a delicacy, but Nellie Reagan, the Bible-quoting mother who assured Ron that everything in life was part of God's plan, gave her son as firm a grounding in his own place in the moral universe as did Sarah Dell to her beloved only child on their Hudson Valley estate. Growing up in a household dominated by adults, young Franklin Roosevelt learned early to hide his true feelings behind a dutiful facade of smiling aloofness. As president, he would have countless acquaintances and almost no true friends. Much the same could be said of Ronald Reagan, the bookish youth who lived in his dreams and through his mother's fundamentalist faith. I won't Actually, I still remember a day back in 2000, we did a program in this room uh, called When Politics Was Still Fun. And one of the folks we had that day was Lynn Knobziger, the late Lynn Knobziger, who served uh, memorably as, as Ronald Reagan's uh, press spokesman, I remember at the time of the uh, assassination attempt in March of 1981. And I'll never forget, Lynn told me something that opened my eyes in some ways about Reagan, uh, who was much more observant than he is generally thought to have been. You know what Reagan's boyhood ambition was to be? He wanted to be a cartoonist. We all heard about him doodling away in dull cabinet meetings, which is probably about the most intelligent thing you can do if you're trapped in a dull cabinet meeting. Um, but stop and think what a, what a cartoonist is, an artist um, whose livelihood depends upon his powers of observation, who's someone who steps back and watches everything and everyone around him. 
From his first day in office, Franklin Roosevelt experimented with new ideas. Consistency would never be his hobgoblin. At the same time, he wasn't afraid to make mistakes. I have no expectation of making a hit every time I come to bat, he explained to one aide. What I seek is the highest possible batting average. In 1934, FDR dismayed reformers by naming the financier Joseph P. Kennedy to be chairman of the new Securities and Exchange Commission. Even Jim Farley, the uh, chairman of the Democratic National Committee, protested the appointment, reminding Roosevelt of the unscrupulous methods that Kennedy had employed in building his fortune. FDR was unfazed, unpersuaded. He had his own rationale for putting Kennedy in charge of Wall Street. In his words, set a thief to catch a thief. <laughs> a man of instincts rather than fixed ideology, Roosevelt seemed surprised when someone asked him to outline his personal philosophy. Why, he said, I am a Christian and a Democrat. He was similarly unreflective when his own wife raised the issue of religious training for their children. I never really thought about it, he told her. I think it is just as well not to think about things like that too much. <laughs> Ronald Reagan was scarcely more introspective. And yet, for someone who was so wedded to basic truths, Reagan's midwife decision to jettison his lifelong commitment to the party of Roosevelt represented a spiritual and intellectual crisis that was hardly less wrenching than FDR's bout with polio. In time, both men would be shot at by would-be assassins, their graceful responses exposing the steel behind their smiling exteriors. In the wake of his shooting in 1981, Reagan became more fatalistic than ever. He told New York's uh, Terence Cardinal Cook and Mother Teresa uh, that whatever time I have left belongs to God. More important, he believed it. No doubt FDR would have agreed. Their similarities do not end there. Each man had served as governor of the nation's largest state. Each entered the White House in a period of grave economic crisis. Each brilliantly used the mass media to enlist public support for his agenda. Successful presidents, I would suggest, are stage managers and screenwriters. They are narrators of their own drama, heroes of their own morality play. As the great communicator, President Reagan employed television to go over the heads of Congress and special interests, seeking to frustrate his efforts to reduce the size and cost of the federal establishment. Like Roosevelt, he raised the nation's mood through the force of his personality and unquenchable optimism. But it must also be said that he had a good deal more help than FDR could call upon. By the 1980s, the bully pulpit had been institutionalized some would say trivialized, to include three people in the White House Office of Communication, ten in the Office of Speechwriting and Research, two in the Office of Media Relations and Planning, fourteen in the Office of Public Liaison, three in the Office of Public Affairs, two in the Office of Communication Planning, fourteen in the Office of the Press Secretary, and five in the Office of News Summary and Audio Service. Under the circumstances, spontaneity went the way of rose garden ceremonies and focus groups. In his first run for the White House, FDR declared, I ask you to judge me by the enemies I have made. This was more than shrewd. In truth, both Roosevelt and Reagan had a genius for exploiting their opponents, whether the European dictators 
against whom FDR maneuvered in the 1930s, or the evil empire that haunted Reagan's vision of a world precariously balanced on the narrow window wedge of nuclear destruction. On the hunt, Roosevelt ran against big business. Reagan railed at the excesses of big government. Each man defeated a predecessor who knew considerably more than he did about the minutia of government and who understood far less about the American people. What Justice Holmes said of Herbert Hoover's successor in March 1933 seems equally applicable to Jimmy Carter's half a century later. Roosevelt declared the old Brahmin possessed a second-rate intellect but a first-class temperament. Now, not even their greatest admirers would call Roosevelt or Reagan slaves to consistency. FDR entered office guaranteeing a 25% cut in federal expenditures, only to lay the foundation for the modern welfare state. There is, in fact, a wonderful story, which has the added advantage of being true. About um, in 1932, Roosevelt ran against Herbert Hoover from the left and the right, which was not difficult to do since Hoover wasn't very mobile. And uh, in Pittsburgh, Roosevelt gave a famous speech demanding a 25% cut in all federal expenditures, denouncing Hoover as a spendthrift and a wastrel, and promising to do away with all sorts of unnecessary government boards and regulation. He wins the election. He governs successfully. He runs for re-election in 1936. Guess what? He's going back to Pittsburgh. His speechwriter, Sam Rosenman, comes up and says, Mr. President, we have a problem. NFDI says, what? He says, remember that speech you gave in Pittsburgh in 1932? You promised a 25% cut in government spending. Needless to say, it was a promise that had not been kept. What should we do? FDR thought for a moment, and then he said, I know, deny we were ever in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> With much the same cavalry attitude, Ronald Reagan believed he could cut taxes and grow his way out of the resulting deficit without sacrificing either his cherished military buildup or the social programs that even conservative voters wish to conserve for their children. Classic administrative appeal held little, uh, or classic administrative theory held little appeal for either leader. FDR had three vice presidents. Reagan had six national security advisors. Early in his second term, Reagan casually allowed his White House Chief of Staff and Secretary of the Treasury to swap jobs with disastrous results. At one point, the President joked about controlled chaos in his administration, claiming that its right hand didn't know what its far right hand was up to. <laughs> For his part, FDR similarly welcomed the clash of ideas and personalities that went with duplication and overlapping responsibilities. In an effort to bolster farm prices, he cavalierly set the international price of gold each morning while breakfasting in bed on soft-boiled eggs. One day, he decided on a rise of 21 cents, telling his advisors that three times seven was a lucky number. Other decisions had more fateful consequences. Roosevelt presided over the creation of the first atomic bomb. Reagan envisioned a strategic defense initiative, popularly dubbed Star Wars, to end the nuclear nightmare. FDR boldly recognized the Soviet Union in 1933. Reagan shocked the foreign policy establishment in 1982 by consigning the Marxist experiment to the ash heap of history. Roosevelt put the first woman in the cabinet. Reagan named the first woman to the Supreme Court. 
Each man was married to a controversial wife whose immersion in admirable causes was insufficient to overcome the fear and resentment she inspired among White House staffers. Roosevelt was the patrician with a common touch, Reagan every man with more than a touch of Hollywood glamour. Figures of elusive temperament, each was accustomed to being underestimated by his contemporaries. Of FDR, Walter Whitman famously, if inaccurately, observed that he is, quote, a pleasant man who, without any important qualifications for the office, would very much like to be president. Even harsher things were said about Ronald Reagan, whose presumed intellectual and ideological shortcomings earned him the mockery of one Washington opinion leader as an amiable dunce. More modest than the average politician, Reagan said he didn't mind the fawning media coverage, accorded Mikhail Gorbachev after the Soviet leader conceded most of Reagan's points to obtain a nuclear arms deal. I don't resent his popularity, explained the president. Good Lord, I co-starred with Errol Flynn once. <laughs> Beyond this, both presidents used humor as a shield and a weapon. As a presidential humorist, Ronald Reagan was in a class by himself. Who will ever forget the grace and wit he displayed in the aftermath of his shooting in 1981? The next day, Lynn Novziger uh, went to the president's sickbed and announced, you'll be happy to know that the government is running normally. What makes you think I'd be happy about that, said Reagan. <laughs> Famously genial, Reagan could actually be quite astringent in putting down a rival. For example, during the 1980 campaign, he claimed that Jimmy Carter was supposed to go on 60 Minutes to talk about his achievements, quote, but that would leave 59 minutes of dead air to fill. <laughs> Reagan deflated his critics in the intelligentsia by describing a mythical costume ball attended by a friend who, quote, slapped some egg on his face and went as a liberal economist. <laughs> Reagan's joy in political combat echoed that of his Democratic counterpart. In the 1936 election, FDR had a field day with so-called Me Too Republicans. Addressing a Democratic audience in New York that September, the president was at the top of his form. Quote, let me warn the nation against the smooth evasion which says, of course we believe all these things. We believe in Social Security. We believe in work for the unemployed. We believe in saving homes. Cross our hearts and hope to die, we believe in all these things. But we do not like the way the present administration is doing them. Just turn them over to us. We will do all of them. We will do more of them. We will do them better. And most important of all, the doing of them will not cost anybody anything. For each man, a landslide re-election was followed by a political comeuppance. Roosevelt's too clever by half plan to pack the Supreme Court with justices friendly to the New Deal demonstrated the limits of his normally faultless political judgment. Reagan stumbled just as badly in the Iran-Contra affair, refusing to acknowledge his error with the same stubbornness that made him go through with his controversial visit to a German military cemetery containing the graves of men who had served in Hitler's SS. In both instances, a pragmatic leader elevated intransigence to the level of principle. 
that both men emerged from these controversies largely unscathed is a tribute to their formidable gifts of persuasion, first honed through self-persuasion. Reagan actually believed he had seen Holocaust victims in Nazi concentration camps when he had, in fact, glimpsed them on film only. For his part, FDR solemnly assured voters in 1936 that, quote, I have seen war, or as he said, I have seen war. I have seen blood running from the wounded. I have seen men coughing out their gassed lungs. I have seen the dead in the mud. He neglected to mention that he saw most of these things from the windows of a Rolls Royce that carried him on a 1918 inspection tour of World War I battlefields where an outbreak of influenza posed more danger from germs than from Germans. In the words of his distinguished biographer Jeffrey Ward, Roosevelt could never leave history alone. In the White House, he was forever inventing conversations with imaginary garage mechanics and Chinese laundrymen who just, in the president's words, just dropped by <laughs> long enough to voice agreement with his policies. None of these visitors were ever recorded by White House staff, but they showed up repeatedly at presidential press conferences. Spectral evidence of Roosevelt's supposed closeness to ordinary Americans. But this was so much overkill. Few, if any, American leaders have ever inspired greater devotion, or it must be said, more vitriolic hostility. The same could be said of Ronald Reagan. Of course, the similarities between the two men, however striking, are outweighed by FDR's love of experimentation and his genuine disdain for the old order. His New Deal was an improvised response to the gravest economic crisis in the nation's history. The Reagan Revolution, by contrast, was rooted in ideological convictions developed over more than 30 years. In the end, each man pursued fundamentally different objectives. By promising economic security through government action, FDR established political norms that would last half a century. Yet the life jacket of one generation can become the straitjacket of the next. By a curious twist of logic, Reagan refused to concede that his election in 1980 heralded a repudiation of FDR's policies. Indeed, he did not hesitate to summon Roosevelt's ghost to justify what he called the new beginning. Reagan told an audience early in his first term, quote, with the same energy that Franklin Roosevelt sought government solutions to problems, we will seek private solutions. In making this claim, Reagan tipped his hat to a leader whose enduring impact placed limitations on just how transforming his own presidency could be. George Will said it best when he declared early in the 1980s that the American people were indeed conservative. They wished to conserve the New Deal. As a result, the man who spoke of an America without limits was forced to disguise his U-turn as a mere change of course. Historians like generals are prone to refight past battles. Many find it difficult to categorize the Reagan presidency to apply conventional rules to this most unconventional of leaders. Just consider, a conventional leader would have hesitated to confront the basic assumption which has governed American politics since 1933, the belief that Washington must inevitably exert more control over personal and economic decisions. Reagan not only challenged such ideas, he left in his wake a new consensus that would both govern and limit successors of both political parties. Bill Clinton did not set out to be 
the most conservative Democratic president since Grover Cleveland. He was forced into that role, contrary to his activist instincts, because he inherited the anti-Washington consensus bequeathed him by Ronald Reagan. A conventional leader would have taken for granted the existing superpower relationship, balanced on the equilibrium of Cold War hostility. Reagan insisted that the Soviet Union was a historical aberration and that the Cold War could be won by the West in our lifetime. A conventional leader would have been satisfied with incremental progress on arms control, slowing the rate of increase in the world's nuclear stockpiles. Reagan believed that the arms race could be ended and the stockpiles eliminated. When it came to foreign policy and his reputation as a staunch anti-communist, Reagan managed to have his cake and eat it too. He liked to tell of the mythical American and his Soviet counterpart who were comparing their respective forms of government. In my country, said the American, I can walk into the Oval Office in the White House, slam my fist on the desk, and say I don't like the way Ronald Reagan is running the United States. Well, replied his Soviet counterpart, I can do the same thing in the Politburo. You can, asked the incredulous American. Certainly I can. I can go into Gorbachev's office, slam my fist on his desk and say, I don't like the way President Reagan is running the United States. <laughs> there was another Reagan. I'll tell you one more Reagan story. Because he loved to tell this. You know, he told Gorbachev stories around Gorbachev, which suggests the kind of relationship that they had developed. So one day, Gorbachev decided to sort of turn the tables. Gorbachev decided to tell a Gorbachev story uh, to Reagan. And this concerned a long, interminable, very Soviet line outside a store with a little bit of meat and a few other consumer goods. And the line went seemingly for miles, and it barely moved. And um, ultimately, people just got fed up. And uh, they were uh, on the verge of, of rioting. And someone stepped out from the line and said, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to go shoot Gorbachev. And he went off, and everyone cheered. And he went off to the, uh, in the direction of the Kremlin. 24 hours go by. The lines moved about half a block. He comes back. Someone says, well, did you shoot Gorbachev? He said, no, that line was twice as long. <laughs> Great leaders not only have a sense of humor, they can turn it on themselves. A sense of humor, I've always said, is a synonym for a sense of perspective. If you can laugh at yourself, then I think that's a wonderful safety valve. And great presidents all have that capacity. Franklin Roosevelt loved to tell the story of the Wall Street executive who would buy a newspaper every morning, look at the front page, swear, and throw the unread paper in the trash can. One day, the newspaper stand operator asked the executive what he was doing day after day. I'm looking for an obituary, said the businessman. But, sir, obituaries aren't on the front page. They're toward the back. Son, said the executive, you damn well better believe the obituary I'm looking for will be on the front page. <laughs> FDR was a conservative radical who forged a new consensus in place of the prevailing orthodoxy of the 1920s, one that accepted the growth of the state and the overriding importance of the presidency. 
Moreover, Roosevelt insisted on an economic bill of rights to complement the political rights enshrined in the original amendments to the Constitution. He sought not freedom from government, but freedom through government. Ronald Reagan, by contrast, was a radical conservative who exalted the sovereignty of market forces, going so far as to compare government to a baby. Quote, an elementary canal with a big appetite at one end and no sense of responsibility at the other. <laughs> Ironically, his victory in the Cold War and the return of power to grassroots Americans would produce a post-Reagan presidency that was more visible and less powerful than at any time in 60 years, until 9-11. It's a terrible thing, said Franklin Roosevelt, to look over your shoulder when you are trying to lead and find no one there. In the economically desperate 1930s, it was said that it took a man on crutches to teach a crippled nation how to walk. But it was one thing for the president who proclaimed himself Dr. New Deal to raise a nation's spirit, not to mention billions of dollars of government spending, quite another to convince a people who harbored bleak memories of the First World War that they should again enter the lists against European dictators. For most of the 1930s, Roosevelt waged a war of words because public opinion could stomach nothing stronger. For himself, the president never doubted the threat posed by fascist dictators in Berlin, Rome, and Tokyo. With mounting frustration, he watched as Japan occupied Manchuria, Mussolini took Ethiopia, and Hitler annexed Austria before the spineless democracies handed him Czechoslovakia on a platter. Roosevelt didn't have to take a poll to know that most Americans were both isolationist and anti-war. The bitter byproduct of an earlier war, Woodrow Wilson's war. These views found vehement expression in the halls of Congress. In 1935, lawmakers enacted the Neutrality Act, prohibiting the export of arms, ammunition, or implements of war to any belligerent nation. In 1937, they amended the act to forbid American ships from entering war zones or traveling on belligerent vessels. It didn't end there. In 1938, there was something called the Peace Amendment. The Peace Amendment, according to every political opinion poll, enjoyed the support of 75% of the American people. It was introduced in the House of Representatives. It got 188 votes in the House of Representatives. It would have passed had FDR not behind the scenes applied what pressure he could to his fellow Democrats. The Peace Amendment was very simple. It wasn't enough to allow Congress constitutionally to declare war. Any declaration of war then had to be validated in a popular referendum. When FDR asked Congress to repeal the Neutrality Act in 1939, he was met with blank refusal. Not until Germany invaded Poland later that year did the people's representatives grudgingly permit the United States to sell arms and only then to nations able to pay for them in cash. Publicly, Roosevelt continued to proclaim his allegiance to non-intervention. Behind the scenes, however, he began to prepare the nation and its woefully inadequate military for the coming battle. The army, the United States Army in 1940, was smaller than that of Portugal's. The defense budget was dramatically increased. The economy converted to a wartime footing. To broaden his political base, in 1940, Roosevelt shrewdly picked two leading Republicans, 
Henry Stimson and Frank Knox to take over the war and Navy departments. Soon after, he agreed to swap 50 aging U.S. destroyers for British bases in the Caribbean and Newfoundland. At the end of December 1940, the president went on the radio. Quote, this is not a fireside chat on war, he told listeners. It is a talk on national security. Then he recalled the dark days of March 1933, enlisting history on his side to both frighten and inspire his countrymen. At no time since Jamestown or Plymouth Rock, he said, had American civilization faced such danger. No longer could Americans expect to hide behind the Atlantic and Pacific as if they were moats around a medieval castle. The distance between Nazi positions in North Africa and Brazil was less than that from Washington to Denver, Colorado. Five hours for the latest type of bomber. As the world shrank, the threat posed by Hitler grew daily. Quote, the experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. No man can tame a tiger into a kitten by stroking it. There can be no appeasement with ruthlessness. There can be no reasoning with an incendiary bomb. We now know that a nation can have peace with Nazis only at the price of total surrender. The following month, the president set forth in his State of the Union address a set of war aims for a nation technically at peace. They were called the Four Freedoms. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. Straining the very limits of his presidential powers, Roosevelt authorized the Navy to attack German submarines west of 25 degrees longitude. In August 1941, by a single vote, he convinced Congress to permit a peacetime draft. That same day, Roosevelt and Winston Churchill published the Atlantic Charter, another lofty declaration that stopped just short of clearing war. The result of a secret five-day conference at sea, it left little doubt in Berlin or Boston about the approaching conflict. By now, Dr. New Deal was retired in favor of Dr. Win the War. In September 1941, a U.S. destroyer exchanged fire with a German submarine in the North Atlantic. The following month, German subs attacked another U.S. vessel, escorting a British convoy. Several crewmen were injured. At the end of October, Nazi subs sank an American ship and killed more than 100 crew members. Under the circumstances, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was almost anticlimactic. As a wartime leader, FDR entrusted battlefield strategy to his generals while reserving geopolitics for himself. He displayed a keen eye for talent, for example, jumping a junior officer named Dwight Eisenhower a few short months before, a 50-year-old lieutenant colonel, over more than 300 superior officers before entrusting him with the greatest invasion in history. Roosevelt planned for peace even as he prosecuted the war. More precisely, he realized that the two were inseparable. In 1944, international conferences held under American auspices established such post-war bulwarks as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. In the same year, FDR ran for a fourth term. His chief campaign plan calling for an economic bill of rights guaranteeing 60 million jobs after the war picking up where Wilson left off, but displaying a far surer grasp of domestic politics. Roosevelt convinced Churchill, Stalin, and others to join him in establishing an international organization that would make permanent the wartime alliance known as the United Nations. 
Was Roosevelt capable of duplicity? You bet. Did he sometimes bend the rules, exceed his constitutional authority, flirt with falsehood? Absolutely. And history has endorsed his actions emphatically. Little wonder then that along with, FDR, along with Lincoln, FDR is held up as the quintessential war leader. Whatever else may have divided them, Roosevelt and Reagan alike embodied national optimism and the rejection of limits. Much as Winston Churchill became the British lion at a critical juncture in the history of his island race, and Charles de Gaulle personified his certain vision of France in repudiating the dishonor of May 1940. In the end, great leaders are essentially mysterious figures, even to their followers. Said National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane, one of many Reagan White House staffers whose condescension was matched by their bewilderment over the President's achievements, quote, he knows so little and accomplishes so much. <laughs> the leaders who loom largest in our collective memory march to the beat of their own drummer and labels and logic be damned. Consider the following. In the summer of 1985, the President of the United States entered Bethesda Naval Hospital, where surgeons successfully operated on him after discovering a malignancy. In releasing this news to the public, the doctors made only one mistake. They didn't bother to confer with their patient. As Ronald Reagan saw things, he didn't have cancer. Quote, something inside of me had cancer, and they removed it said Reagan with the same willful disregard for the obvious that sustained his presidency and drove his adversaries to distraction. So put aside the conventional academic models. The real question that should be asked of any president is, did he make a significant difference, not only in his time, but for a long time to come? Did the force of his personality and the power of his ideas affect the way Americans live, how they see themselves, and how they relate to the rest of the world? Did he spend himself in causes larger than himself for purposes nobler than re-election? Leaders who espouse timeless principles will generally find that time is on their side. I will never forget hearing President Reagan in one of his last public appearances relate this story to an audience assembled at the Reagan Library, of which I was then director, it seems there was a much married woman who walked into a bridal shop one day and told the sales clerk that she was looking for a wedding gown for her fourth wedding. Well, replied the sales clerk, exactly what type of dress are you looking for? A long, frilly white dress with a veil, she replied. The sales clerk didn't quite know what to say. Frankly, madam, dresses of that nature are considered more appropriate for brides who are being married for the first time for those who are a bit more innocent, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, replied the customer, more than a little put out, I can assure you that I'm as innocent as the rest of them. Believe it or not, despite all my marriages, I remain as innocent as any first-time bride. You see, she went on, my first husband was a dear, sweet man. Unfortunately, all the excitement of the wedding was simply too much for him, and he died as we checked into the hotel on our wedding night. <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear that, said the sales clerk, but what about the others? Well, my second husband and I got into a terrible fight in the limousine on the way to our wedding reception. We haven't spoken since and got the marriage annulled quickly. Well, what about your third husband? 
asked the sales clerk. Well, said the woman, he was a Democrat. And every night for four years, he just sat on the edge of the bed and told me how good it was going to be. Every politician makes a career of, out of telling voters how good it is going to be. The greatest make us believe it. As poignant as Reagan's handwritten letter to the American people revealing his Alzheimer's disease are the final scrawled lines of a speech set for delivery on April 13, 1945. Quote, the only limit to our realization of tomorrow, wrote Franklin Roosevelt in the twilight of his life, will be our doubts of today. Let us move forward with strong and active faith. While other presidential reputations bounce around like corn in a popper, Roosevelt and Reagan seem assured of history's notice and posterity's gratitude. If you doubt my word, just pay a visit to the nation's capital. We're not far from Ronald Reagan National Airport and the Ronald Reagan International Trade Center. You can experience Washington's newest and most popular monument, a moving tribute in granite and bronze to the president who redefined the presidency, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Thank you very much. Now, we've got a few minutes, I think, in case anyone has questions, comments. Observations? Or if you just want to get into an argument? <laughs> yeah? Well, he thought he was more important than, than a mere president. <laughs> Seriously, he thought that, after all, presidents come and go every four or eight years. But the publisher of the Chicago Tribune, I mean, Publishers shape and mold public opinion. Publishers tell presidents what they should do. That's what he thought. The voters disproved him on several occasions. Yeah? Your personal favorite and why? It's a fair question, but it's, it's almost impossible to answer. I, I, I have such quirky tastes. I'm a great admirer of Woodrow Wilson, but I'm a great admirer of Calvin Coolidge. Um, probably George Washington is truly the indispensable man. I could do without Andrew Jackson. Um, anyone who knows me thinks uh, Franklin, I regard Franklin Pierce as a, 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 the best argument against democracy that I can, uh, that I can think of. Um, we had a string of mediocrities before the Civil War. But you know, the great blessing in this country, call it providential, call it coincidence, is in times of great crisis, we have been blessed with leaders, whatever their party, whatever their ideology, um, who have been able to inspire us to the best within us. And, um, you know, as I said the other day, the, the genius of democracy in America is it's a self-correcting mechanism. Presidents help. There's no doubt about that. Um, every single president wants to do his best. Um, no one wants to be Franklin Pierce. Um, <laughs> he probably wanted to do his best too. Um, 
But um, I'm discovering James Madison. The old, I'll tell you, the older I get, now that's interesting, the older I get, for example, I would not want to be stuck on a desert island with Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, he's very entertaining to read about. He's a wonderful, galloping, swashbuckling, colorful figure. But I mean, he would suck all the air out of a room. <laughs> on the other hand, William Howard Taft is a delightfully mellow, wry figure who never really wanted to be a politician, really had a judicial temperament, and could step back and see the, the, um, the, the humor and the absurdities of the political mind. So I guess the older I get, I'm more of a Taftite and less of a, less of a TR. Yeah? You were head of the Hoover Presidential Museum for a while. Is he still as misunderstood as I think he is? He is. Um, you know, in the end, you do what you can do. Um, this was a man, well, he needs Steven Spielberg to do for him what Spielberg did for John Quincy Adams. You know, he needs to make a movie. Um, Herbert Hoover fed a billion people in 55 countries around the world. He organized the first international relief effort in World War I. The Commission for the Relief of Belgium kept 10 million people from starving to death. And you know what the administrative overhead was? Three-tenths of one percent. Volunteerism. He came home, ran the, uh, the American Food Administration. It was all voluntary. Public relations. Food will win the war. Wheat was Wednesdays. Meat was Mondays. The administrative overhead was less than five-tenths of one percent. So you can understand why, when he became president, he believed in the generosity and the goodness of the American people. He said, all you had to do is spell out the need, and they were the most generous people on earth. They would respond. The problem was no one could imagine a need as great or crippling or pervasive or enduring as the Great Depression. And ironically, the very idealism, the conviction in the goodness of the American people that raised Hoover to the presidency became a ball and chain that hobbled him at a time when the rules changed. Overnight, what we wanted from a president was very different. And uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't give us this. Partly, you know, we're all products of our, of our upbringing. Woodrow Wilson said, a boy never outgrows his boyhood. Herbert Hoover was an orphan Quaker who remembered to the end of his life sitting in an unheated Iowa meeting house his feet not touching the floor. He said later he was 10 years old before he realized he could do something for pleasure without offending God. Yeah? The current threat from the Mideast uh, against not only the United States but many other countries, uh, what do you see or how do you see the resolution of this thing? Are we going to defend ourselves and what's the ultimate outcome is going to be? It's more than a tough one to call. If I knew that, I'd be on the Iraq study group. <laughs> That's outside my field of expertise. Um, very important in life to know your limitations. I don't drive a car, and I don't advise people on the Middle East. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is there any evidence that Ronald Reagan's Alzheimer's disease 
Yeah. Well, you know, that's a good question, and it's, it's come up, you know. It was whispered then. Um, I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Somewhere there is a, a name. Maybe it's just getting old. Um, there are people, Edmund Morris is one, who believe that Reagan was never quite as buoyant after the assassination attempt. Although he bounced back and functioned fine, that it, in some ways, it took something out of him that, uh, that, that he really never regained. Now, is that a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's? I don't think so. I think he got old. I think he got tired. When Nobziger told me, he got lazy. When when was uh, was sort of put out because he used to he thought that he he said it would have been better for Reagan, but impossible for the country for him to have been elected in 1976. Like just those those extra four years. Um, and and the other thing he he once told me was you know when he he was with Reagan in Sacramento, and he insisted and Reagan performed very well at regular, frequent press conferences. And the wonderful thing about having to sit down with the press on a regular basis is it keeps you on your toes, it keeps you intellectually alert to what is going on throughout the vastness of your own administration and the federal government. It's a running battle of wits, if you will. And what happened when he came to Washington was he was surrounded by people who were afraid to let Reagan be Reagan. And they were very skillful in many ways, and they contributed, I think, significantly to the success of his presidency. But no one's perfect. And I think they were responsible, Nobziger believed at least, they were responsible for keeping Reagan cocooned, keeping him away from the press, from the regular exposure, the regular testing that a press conference provides. And consequently, he got rusty. And once he got rusty, he got lazy. Because no, none of us like to do things we don't like to do. And if you're a president, sitting in a room of 200 reporters is not a pleasant experience. Um, you know, and, and after all, you're the most powerful man in the world. So why should you have to do that? You know, it's not either or. Um, FDR, I think, wanted to go home to Hyde Park in 1939, 1940. But that same process that had begun, that I described earlier, almost by subterfuge, of preparing the American people for war that he knew was coming, he believed in his heart, um, convinced him. I don't think it was a difficult effort to convince him that he was irreplaceable. Um, there are those around the president who said he, he really believed that he would never die, you know, and he might have sought a fifth term. But, but I, I think it's a combination of motives. I think if you look, though, I mean, the, the most likely Democratic nominee in 1940 was Cordell Hull, who had many admirable qualities, but electability uh, was not one of them. And the Republicans, up until that time, 
were in the hands of isolationists like Bob Taft and Arthur Vandenberg before he underwent his uh, road to Damascus conversion. So um, um, you, you had FDR who believed that the fate of the world was at stake. And he looked around, he saw his own party, he saw the opposition party. Was it ego? Maybe. But in this instance, uh, it was ego trumped by something, something much greater. And I, I think when you ask that question, you should then carry it and imagine what if he hadn't run. Lord only knows what would have happened. Yeah? Well, it's interesting. He asked about the similarities in the relationship between uh, Roosevelt and Churchill and Reagan and Thatcher. Of course, the special relationship, so-called, really was born uh, in this unique relationship that existed, then unique relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill. Um, I never can remember whether it was Roosevelt to Churchill or Churchill to Roosevelt. I think it was Roosevelt to Churchill who said, it's fun being in the same decade with you. There was a sense, you know, they had met years before. Um, Churchill professed not to remember because it had not gone well at all. And each thought the other kind of a braggart and a bully. And each had a point. Um, <laughs> but they became not only allies, but, but fast friends. At the same time, I think it's a mistake to sentimentalize the relationship. I talked about Lend-Lease. I talked about the, the swap of the 50 aging destroyers. Britain paid dearly for that lifeline. Um, those bases were permanently seeded. It accelerated the decline and the dispersal of the British Empire, certainly in the Western Hemisphere. FDR drove a hard bargain. So I, I think you can look at this relationship, which was very close, which was very historic, um, without, as I say, sort of sentimentalizing it. Now, 40 years later, certainly Reagan and Thatcher are leaders who are great admirers of Churchill. Um, Reagan was a great admirer of FDR. I don't think Mrs. Thatcher probably thought much of, uh, of Franklin Roosevelt or the New Deal. But they were both transforming leaders. I mean, all four of these people are. Uh, they're both agents of change, ironically, conservatives in the case of Reagan and Thatcher, who nevertheless represented dramatic um, change from, from their predecessors. Um, I think they, in some ways, maybe wanted to believe that they were a modern equivalent of Roosevelt and, and uh uh, Churchill. I think there was a little bit of sentimentality at work there. But again, you know, Ronald Reagan was no pushover when, uh, remember the invasion of Grenada? Grenada happened to be part of the British Empire. And there was a wonderful story of, you know, there's a time difference, of course, between London and Washington, five hours, I guess. And um, they're sitting in the Oval Office. Reagan gets a call from Mrs. Thatcher. And he's holding it sort of like here. And everyone in the Oval Office can hear the Prime Minister, who was not happy. And Reagan has a big smile on his face. I mean, he, he said, isn't she wonderful? You know? <laughs> I mean, now I think, 
He had enormous respect for her. She had enormous respect for him. I think one of the most poignant things I've ever seen, I think the moment I will always remember from the Reagan funeral, was seeing Lady Thatcher defying her doctor's orders, flying across the Atlantic to pay her respects to her old friend and ally. And, um, but I would add one more name to that duo, and I would, I would make it a trio, because I would add Pope John Paul II to the Reagan-Thatcher-John Paul uh, trio, if you will, who changed the world in ways that even now we're only beginning to come to terms with. Yeah? I don't like him very much, but he was a near great president. He, uh, Sam Rayburn said, you know, he got all the little things wrong and he got all the big things right. And stop and think of what he was faced with. He, he was vice president for 82 days. FDR never told him anything, didn't know about the uh, atomic bomb. Um, he becomes president and almost overnight, one crisis after another. Think of the decisions that confronted the so-called little man from Missouri. Um, all of a sudden, our great wartime ally of the Soviet Union, we were locked in a Cold War with the Soviet Union. Um, the United Nations had to be chartered and given life. This was part of FDR's legacy. Um, he had to deal with Uncle Joe Stalin, first at Potsdam and then you know, as the, as the relationship deteriorated, he had to devise a, a, a policy to deal with this. Well, it was communist containment. And what did that mean? The Truman Doctrine in 1947, aid to Greece and Turkey. Three months later, the Marshall Plan. Then NATO. Um, one instrument after another after another. The, the Harry Truman is the most modest of, of, of modern presidents. Uh, he didn't go to college. Um, and yet, Harry Truman is also the architect of the national security state. And I, I don't say that critically. I just say it's a, it's a fascinating um, paradox. I think he's become a folk hero for many reasons, and I think for many understandable reasons. He was authentic. But you know what? He wouldn't get elected dog catcher today. If you read the letter he sent to the Washington Post music critic, about Margaret singing, you know, in this political climate, you know, Fox News would be going, we would be lathering at the mouth, and there'd be impeachment resolutions, and, you know, demands that the president apologize, and, you know, and, and that was just one incident. But I think today we live in such an artificial political culture. It's so phony. It's so formulaic. It's so scripted, uh, it's so lacking in spontaneity that Harry Truman um, enjoys a reputation perhaps larger than, than he deserves. But more power to him. He, um, when, he went, when he left office in 1953, he went back to independence, to the only home he never owned. It was his mother-in-law's house. And the mayor said, well, Mr. President, what was the first thing you did after you crossed the threshold? He said, I took the grips up to the attic. <laughs> That's Harry Truman. But you have to remember, I see, I'm my bias, just so you know, I'm Tom Dewey's biographer. So, you know, 
uh, he, he might have been that other Michigan you know, president, if only the electorate had been a little wiser in 1948. Uh, yeah. Hmm. The Wall Street Journal asked me earlier this year to list the five best biographies of FDR. Um, Conrad Black was probably a crook and probably going to jail, but he wrote a great book um, about FDR. We probably want to cut that from the. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> I have enough friends in Illinois without being summoned to his trial. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I could be a non-character witness. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, and, and the book he wrote, it's, it's this thick. But it's, it's wonderful, particularly coming from a conservative viewpoint. Um, because he refutes a lot of the old canards about FDR being taken in by Stalin and lying us into Pearl Harbor and so forth and so on. I think actually, the, if you want the best one-volume biography of FDR, is called FDR by a man named Ted Morgan. It was published in 1982 for the uh, Roosevelt Centenary. Ted Morgan, interestingly enough, was born in France. He's a naturalized American, and he has an extraordinary feel for the American political culture and for the uh, complexity and elusiveness of Roosevelt. Roosevelt was like a many-layered cake. And, uh, I, and I think Re Reagan was much the same. I don't think Reagan was as simple as either his admirers or his detractors wanted to believe. I think he's a very complex figure. I don't think anyone in the White House, in the history of the White House, has been as complicated as Franklin Roosevelt, which is one reason why he, he's fascinating to read about. It's a mystery. Uh, two more. One right there. Yep, you. Having any fun? Being great or having fun or perhaps both. That's a conundrum. And the, and the reason is because being great generally means rising to the occasion in times of crisis. In times of crisis, there's not much fun. Um, there are presidents, obviously, in the past. Lincoln, in the greatest of crises, in the most dire of circumstances, um, to, the, to the horror of his cabinet, told smutty jokes. And he said, I must laugh or else I would die. Um, I think a sense of humor, uh, putting aside fun, which people will identify or differently. I, I, you know, Harry Truman said that um, a backbone is necessary to be president, but so is a funny bone and that a man who didn't have a sense of humor would go insane in the office. Um, and it's true, if you look at the most humorless presidents, uh, they do tend to be at the bottom of the barrel in terms of, uh, of uh, academic listings. Uh, look, at the, look at the people at the top. Lincoln, um, Roosevelt, Washington wasn't exactly a laugh riot, but uh, um, he had redeeming qualities. Um, no, I, I think a sense of humor, again, is a sense of proportion. And that is what you need desperately uh, to deal with any, any pressure situation. But particularly, uh, I don't think we'll see another Teddy Roosevelt, probably in our time. I think he was utterly unique. 
Um, but it would be nice to see someone who simply enjoyed the office, who enjoyed being president. I think that's one reason why, for all the tabloid revelations uh, that have come our way, I think I don't think it's just misplaced nostalgia that has John F. Kennedy still with a kind of halo. Because I think people look at the Kennedys and they see this, this radiant, vital, life-affirming couple uh, who took joy in, uh, in life and, 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 and shared some of that with the rest of us. I think that was very real. And I think for all the cynicism that is attached to JFK in recent years, I don't think we should ever lose sight of that. One last question. Well, it, it's a, a legacy is, uh, is written water um, for a president who's in office and particularly for one who's dealing with uh, situations as fluid as Iraq. I mean, clearly, the Bush presidency is defined by Iraq. Um, right now, it doesn't look very good. If, in some way, uh, they manage to find, remember, Harry Truman didn't leave Korea. Uh, exactly how he might have liked. He was very unpopular during his second term. His uh, ratings were lower than the, than the current president's. Um, but history has judged that he, he, he basically did a difficult thing, and he did it about as well as it could be done. He avoided a wider war. He avoided nuclear war. He lived up to the notion of collective security through the United Nations. He restored the pre-war boundary in Korea. And again, if, if your policy is not eliminating communism, because that poses too great a cost in the short run, but containing the spread of communism, believing that time is on your side, Truman looks awfully good. Um, now, this president has clearly decided in almost Wilsonian terms that there is, in fact, an epic clash going on. Uh, on the planet, a clash of cultures that is symbolized by Islamic terrorists who would, if possible, try to destroy our society unless, in the president's view, they are destroyed first. Um, I'm not sure people, people will debate whether that is an accurate reading of the situation. A lot more people will debate whether going into Iraq furthered that objective. Um, if, for example, against all odds, uh, whether the Iraq study group or some other vehicle manages to come up with a, a formula, perhaps an international conference attended by Syria and Iran, um, that leads to, in effect, the petitioning of Iraq. What people forget, this is, again, the, the, the one thing I would say to presidents, not that they've asked my advice, but is Harry Truman was right. You've got to know your history. And the fact is, Iraq is a very artificial country. 
It was something stitched together by Winston Churchill and others in the wake of the First World War. Um, it's a terrible thing to say that a bloodthirsty dictator um, kept it under his heel, but, quote, together. But we don't know what the sequel to that chapter in Iraqi history is. But say that there's some way that we can leave country, uh, that we can get out of Iraq, uh, that, is, that it has a, a reasonable chance to succeed, that it is a self-governing entity, um, then down the road, I think Bush's decision will look much better than it does right now. Um, the elections and the nature of our politics, well, let me come full circle, because I think, as you know, on Sunday, President Ford set a record. Um, I often think, you know, he won't be remembered simply for longevity. I think he'll be remembered for the quality of his character and the way he approached politics. There are many of you who remember the 1970s. They were not a quiet decade. We had Vietnam. We had Watergate. People felt very strongly. They were very vocal. They were very strident. There were lots of pointed fingers. There were lots of poison pens. And yet, at the center of it, there was a president who didn't join in the shouting, who didn't demonize his enemies. In fact, who didn't believe he had enemies, simply adversaries and critics. And one thing he'd learned in Congress was an adversary is someone who may be voting against you today, but who might be with you on the next roll call tomorrow. And I think Gerald Ford got from this community, particularly from his family, but from the larger family that is and was Grand Rapids, a profoundly optimistic sense of the human race. He, he, he once said that as a young man, he learned always to look for the best in people. And if you do that, you'll find it. And you will be inclined to overlook what is less than the best, which you inevitably are going to run into. And I think if more of our leaders could imbibe just a little bit of that, then I think we could have a more civil discourse, not solving all of our differences, not adjourning our arguments, um, certainly not forgetting our principles. But I think one thing that could be said of Gerald Ford and many others is that he was a patriot before he was a partisan. Thank you very much.